All right, welcome back. Whether you're watching online, in this room, in the VHQ venue, in the lobby. My name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. It's been crazy for all of us this summer. Um, You know, we ended up spending 15 weeks in an online-only environment. Everything went online in our church. That was our community groups. That was our uh, student ministry. It was our kids' ministry. It was Sundays. It all went online. And and then June 25th, we came back in person, one service, Thursday night. And uh, we've been doing this now whatever this is, but gathering here and uh, as well online, but, but Thursday night service we've been doing for 10 weeks. And, and you guys, mostly you guys in the room and in the, in the lobby and in the VHQ venue, you have put a healthy pressure on us to go, okay, we've, we've got to get back to morning services. We've got to get back to more services. We've got to get back to weekend services. So I've already said it, but I just want to say it again. S- uh, Sunday, September 13th, we are coming back three services, nine, 11, and five. Here's what that means. Next Thursday, a week from today, Thursday, September 3rd, will be our last Thursday night service here. If you come Thursday, September 10th, we won't be here, but you will be here, okay? <laughs> but you will be here by yourself. Uh, but so we are very, very excited. And guys, let me just tell you, because again, if you're here, you're watching online, you know, uh, you're doing that for a reason. One of the reasons might be you're asking, well, you know, how do I, maybe I am a part of this church, or how do I be a part of this church? So let's talk about that. One of the things that we're doing is really, really good, three different things. And so kind of keep these uploaded in your mind. Just Follow me for a moment because what I'm about to tell you, the three things I'm about to tell you are the three things we're going to spend the next, well, let's just say the rest of 2020 trying to do. The first is we're going to try to reopen the buildings. Okay, that's our plan. We're going to reopen the buildings. Now, you've probably heard it said because I've said it and others have said it. The church isn't closed. The buildings are, which is true. But man, is it a big deal that the buildings are closed? Yes. The answer to that question is yes. Um, And it's, it's not the churches of people. I get that. And the, the building, in fact, when we got in this building, some of you were here for that, we always said the buildings are a means to an end. And, and I kind of thought, if I could just be honest for a second, I'm trying to always be honest, but if I could really be honest for a second here, um, <laughs> what, what I thought is when I went into COVID, and this is actually what leaders told us, they said, like, You'll go into, you're going to go into this and you're going to realize, you know, you don't really need the building. You're going to realize that everybody can just meet in homes. You're going to realize that, you know, just can do community groups. You can re- you're going to realize that online is, is just as good as in person. And I have realized the opposite of all that. This has only affirmed and confirmed everything we believe and everything we've been doing. And so we are reopening the buildings. Guys, this building has not been open on Sundays for six months. Our kids' ministry building has been closed, so we're reopening the buildings. Here's the second thing we're doing. We're we're regathering the people. Okay, it's important to be in person, again, as much as possible. We gave all those caveats. We gave all those airbags. Um, What we mean by that is what is it going to look like for you to regather in this next season? For some of you, you, you it's going to be you're going to get back in person at your group. Some of you are going, you, you've told me, you, you've told us, you're going to come back in person when we get to Sundays. But uh, let me just encourage the community group leaders. And by the way, if you are a community group leader, whether you're watching online or in here, God bless you. We are so grateful for you. And this is a great season for you to lead. And, and your number one role and responsibility is to bring your people back. Right? Everyone's kind of got a different plan. Everyone's got a different pace. We've got to bring each other back. And, and again, I've told you this before, you have to know this. The number one response we get when people come back is, I forgot. I get that a community group too. I forgot what it was like to be in person. I forgot what it was like to make eye contact. I, I forgot what it was like to be around other Christians and sing with them, which leads to the third thing we're doing. We're relaunching all of our ministries. So we're reopening the building. We're regathering the people. We're relaunching the ministries. So and it, nothing's changing fundamentally about us. But just so you know, if you're like, if you've been watching, you go, should I get involved? When would be a good time for me to get involved? Like, I don't want to get involved like, and kind of be the last person and kind of be an outcast. Nope, not at all. This is the best time to get invested and involved. Because we are relaunching our kids' ministry, we're relaunching our servant and tenant culture. And so I'm just excited to go on this journey with you guys. We have prayerfully tried to put our arms around as many people in our church as possible and say, let's go. Different, <laughs> different plans, maybe, different paces, let's go together. 
So let's pray for those three things, reopening the building, regathering the people, relaunching the ministries, and then we're going to dive into our last time together in the book of Malachi. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to reopen the buildings. Nobody could read the book of Exodus or, or Leviticus and not think that buildings don't matter to you. It's, a, it's the building of the tabernacle. It's the building of a place for worship. When the apostle Paul went places, he wanted to know, where's the synagogue? Where's the marketplace? I need to preach. And I need to be in places and spaces where people can gather and hear the word. Lord, I pray for the people that every person would take their next step. Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen our community group leaders and the women's leads as we just have conversations with people and encourage people and meet people where they are, but don't let anybody, including ourselves, stay where we are. Lord, and I pray for all of the ministries. I know the student ministry, the kids ministry, the college ministry, they're all excited to relaunch as we head into the fall. And as we head into a new season, um, in the way that the weather feels, I pray that we would head into a new season in our church as well. In your name we pray, amen. Well, here we are, we're in the last, uh, last day that we're gonna be in the book of Malachi. I'm not even gonna be able to get to really chapter three. I'm gonna come back at some point, preach that chapter. That's probably the only chapter you've ever heard preached in Malachi. If you ever go to Malachi 3, that's the whole bring your tithe to God's storehouse. That's like the sugar stick for the pastor who needs to raise money for something. He goes to that passage, okay? So, so you may have heard that. We're not even really going to talk about that a lot tonight. You can go back to uh, Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. 2, verse 14. Uh, I, I, if you weren't here last week or you didn't see it, we basically got into something and had to press pause, land the plane, get everyone off and say, we've got to get back on this plane, go somewhere else uh, next week. Uh, and what we've been doing is we've been talking about a really big topic, God, marriage, and family. It's such a big topic um, I didn't write this book, but this guy wrote a book called God, Marriage, and Family, okay? This book is by and Andreas Kostenberg. It's not for all of you. It's for some of you. It's deep. It's dense. It's detailed. But if you're like, uh, I'm going to have even more questions about divorce, remarriage, cohabitation, um, children, all those questions, he, you know, he answers in great depth. So that's going to be part of what I want to do is give you resources. Uh, what we're going to do today is we are going back into the book of Malachi, and these people, they were consumers, okay? Which is the great temptation of Americans, too. Right? They consume in their relationship with God, which basically says, God, what I'd like is for you to be made in my image and for you to worship and do what I want you to do. And God goes, wait, actually, you just inverted it. I made you in my image, and you're supposed to worship and do what I want you to do. So they became consumeristic. They didn't worship the Lord. And then last week, we saw they became consumeristic in their relationships. Right? And it's like, you know, if things are hard, they quit. Which is, you know, has it been ever easier in our lives just to quit things? Right? I mean, the context here is they weren't being faithless. Remember, the big idea in the book is to put God first and don't be faithless. And what was happening with them is they were super consumeristic. It's like, and, and that happens all the time today. It's like, oh, you don't like the school you go to? Well, just transfer. You don't like your job? Well, just quit. You don't like your church? Well, just find another one. Maybe you don't like your whole city? Just leave. It's like, do you understand how new of an idea all of those things are? The idea that, like, you don't like your city move, it's like uh, 150, years ago, 150 years ago, impossible. It's like, no, this is your city. You lived, died here, and so did everybody else. Well, I don't like my job. It doesn't make me feel good. It's like, well, sorry. Your family's been doing it for seven generations. And so we live in a very consumeristic culture. And I want us to go back to Malachi chapter 2, and I want us to see one more time God's incredible description of marriage. I'm going to read it at length again, because we're going to spend, a, 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 basically, we're talking about marriage today. We're talking about divorce today. We're talking about remarriage today. We're talking about children today. We're talking about all of it again. And I'm going to say a lot of new things. I'm going, to say th I'm going to get to some things I didn't even talk about at all last week. But we've got to go back to this text. Here's what it says. Uh, Malachi 2.14. But you say, why does he not? In other words, why doesn't God bless my life and answer my prayers? Because the Lord was witness, I was there when you got married, between you and your wife of your youth 
to whom you have been faithless, though she is, and here's the beginning to be a definition of marriage, she's your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one, that's more about marriage, with the portion of the spirit, the spiritual nature of marriage, in their union? And what was the one God seeking? And we'll get to this. Uh, We didn't even talk about this last week. What's God seeking? Godly offspring, godly children. So, and here's a warning, guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, so we'll talk about divorce just a little bit more, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So, and we get a second reminder here, so, and warning, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. One of the roles of the church is to uphold marriage. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, let marriage be held in honor by every person. And I just want to give you, I want to talk for a few minutes about the wonder of marriage. Okay, think about it this way. The Bible, here's a little Bible nerd trivia. The Bible begins and ends with a marriage. Adam and Eve, guess what? Guess who the first uh, dad that walks the daughter down the aisle is? God. Guess who the first pastor who performs the wedding is? God. So in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, we have this first marriage. How does the Bible end? With a marriage. What's the primary, most intimate way that God talks about his relationship with us? He uses, if you read Ezekiel 16 at some point or other things, it's sexual and marital in its nature. The primary, most intimate relationship and way that God talks about us is Christ and the church. Now, think with me for a second. This is such a deep idea. Think with me for a second. Here's what happened. When, when God decided he was going to talk, give us marriage, here's how it worked. It wasn't that God thought, marriage is so awesome, it's I'm going to use marriage as an illustration of what my relationship is like with the church. Because marriage is so intimate, so I'll just take that and I'll use that. No, no, no. God always knew from the foundation of the world that he was going, that we were going to sin, that he was going to pursue us, that he was going to die for us, that he was going to unite himself to us forever in a covenantal relationship. So he decided to give us a picture of that in marriage. The reality was first what he did. And then he gives us this great picture. And it's such an incredible picture. And you just think about how does our society think about marriage? Like my brother, I got a younger brother. He got married a couple years ago. He said, I was at, he, he's a member of a country club up, up north. And he said, I was at the country club. And I told one of the old guys, I was so excited I was getting married. I said, I'm getting married. He goes, and he said, the old guy looks at me and goes, you're breaking into prison. <laughs> it's, okay, it's okay to laugh, okay? I laughed the first time I heard that. Um, <laughs> But it's interesting. I mean, think about that for a moment. That, that is a perspective. The reason that joke's funny is because it, it, it hints and hits at something that people feel about marriage. Right? The old, I'm with the old woman. The old ball and chain. All right? I mean, all that kind of language. Like, why would you ever do that? Or, or, or you can see it in how, you know, you can Google about this later, but the, the, the rise in popularity of divorce parties, which are mostly thrown by women, who, whether it was their fault the divorce or not, they're, they're angry about it, and so they just decided, that's it, we are going, I'm going to throw a big party, invite all my friends, instead of mourning and grieving, which every person should do over every divorce, is they celebrate it, have a party about it, and post it on Facebook. And so what we're trying to do in this passage, and really as a church, is we're trying to talk about the, the, the joy, the honor, the glory of marriage. And there's a lot of things that I want to show you about this. Um, Marriage, let me give you the uh, definition one more time. Marriage is this, uh, I am committed to you in all the ways you will change. That's the definition of marriage. That's a good thing. If you're, if you're married, it's like, yep, that's what you signed up for. Um, that, that's why that's the, that's the idea in the text of covenant. 
that in being made one, it's like I'm committed to you in all the ways you will change. And when, when uh, you know, I'm married for uh, about a decade now, and uh, I remember right my wedding day, that I had this old pastor who did our wedding. He was a great military, ex-military pastor, real kind of tough guy. To this day, I'm still very scared of him. Um, I was scared of him then, I'm scared of him now. Um, but, he, but I remember right before, like I'm talking 10 minutes, and so, you know, those of you who are married kind of know what this, this might feel like, but five or 10 minutes before the wedding's about to start. I mean, I'm in my full tux. I got my brother and my best man next to me. I've got 10 groomsmen next to me. It was just this huge wedding. We're about to walk into this big church. I'm walking, we, we kind of, you know, I was gonna walk through the side door and you know, all this. And uh, the, the pastor, he says, Kyle, I would like to talk to you alone. This is five minutes before the wedding's about to start. Maybe seven. He says, come down here with me. So we walk down and I'm following him. And here I'm standing alone with this pastor and we're at the exit door. And he says to me, dead serious, because you just have to know how this guy is. He goes, this will be, um, if you would like to go, you can go. But this will be your last chance to leave. And if you would like to leave, this will be very embarrassing, but it won't be sinful. And I'll go and I'll take care of it all. I'll, I'll, I'll just tell everyone, we'll explain it. It'll, it. We'll get over it. We'll figure it out financially. But if you go through with this, you can never leave again. So I was out of there. No, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> I know, I, I got, you know. It was scary, though. I mean, like, you know, you're, you're 25 years old, and someone says that to you. You know, it was just, it's like, you're wondering, did you go through with it? I did. I still went through with it. Um, and, um, and so, you, but that's the, I, I tell you that story to say that that's the weight that we get when you read Malachi chapter two of covenant, companion, union. So then I want to talk about divorce for a while because, you know, this is, this is helpful. I mean, this is actually helpful how it worked out in two parts is I got uh, more emails about this message than, and I've not been preaching all that long, but than any message I've ever preached. And people have a lot of questions, right? And so I want to talk just for a little bit more about divorce because I didn't get to say everything that I wanted to say last time because we, you know, what is divorce? It is, it's always sad, and it's always a result of sin. And it's the breaking and the pulling apart of what God had made one. And I told you, I won't go back into it, that there were two, because I don't want, this isn't a review sermon, but I want to tell you some new things. That, you know, we talked last week, there were two reasons. There's adultery and abandonment. Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians um, 7. And, uh, but here's what I want to say and, and talk about a little bit more is, marriage or divorce should never be something that you want to do. It's something only that a few people, sadly, very, very few people, sadly, have to do. What you don't want to do is you don't want to look at those terms, adultery and abandonment, and start figuring out how your situation works out for those to be true for you. Does that make sense? Because I've seen this before where some spouse tells the other spouse something terrible that they've done, and the spouse acts angry and is partly happy. But you would never show that dark part of you, the part of you that didn't really like your marriage, and now you might have an excuse to get out of it. Because let me just, let me give you, let me just invite you into, and not, not, and not that you haven't had these conversations, but you know, when you're in full-time ministry, one of the, the unique things is you get a front row seat at the worst and best things in people's lives. So let me tell you a couple things that people say. Well, I'll give you the easy one first. Well, what about abuse? Well, it's like, yeah, well, physical abuse is abandonment. The, the, the man who's mostly who abuses, abuses in these situations, yes, he has abandoned his rights and responsibilities. What you need to do is separate Right, because the safety of the women and the children are of primary responsibility. And here's what you do if you're ever in any abuse situation. And here's what you tell people. You call the police and the pastors. Here's why. And this is churches actually get in trouble if they don't do this the right way. You call the police because the police deal with the body. You call the pastors because the pastors deal with the soul. 
So if there's something going on, we can rebuke the man, we can call him to repent, we can practice church discipline, we can warn him from scripture, we can comfort those who are hurt, but we need the police involved as well. But people ask about that. now. But, but then after that, let me just tell you, it gets so nuanced that the answer to, if you're dealing with this, is wise counsel in the word of God. Wise counsel in the word of God. That's the two pedals on a bike, right? Because here, here's a couple examples. I had somebody say to me, um, my husband has been emotionally absent from me for the last three years. And he hardly talks to me, and he goes into his basement, and he has his little man cave, and he does everything that he wants to do. And I just feel like he's abandoned me. It's like, is that abandonment? I'm not even going to give the answer. It's like, well, you have to have long conversations. And what would you even mean? What I find is a lot of people are just describing a difficult marriage. It's what every other generation would have said, a hard marriage, and, and, we have, and, and you probably have a lot of deferred maintenance that you haven't mess, you know, touched in a long time. And we've got to work on it. We gotta, let's, God's heart is reconciliation, okay? Had another person tell me, my wife has not had sex with me in two years. It's like, is that abandonment? I mean, he thought it was. Well, my, my husband's passive. He doesn't make enough money. He doesn't play with the kids. And, and the people who know the Bible, they want to fit everything into one of those categories. I caught my husband watching porn. Is that adultery? It, it, it was, uh, it, he, I caught him a couple times. He's, he's actually addicted to it. Now is it? Now can we do something? And I'm just telling you, here's why I'm telling you this, because things look good on paper, but not when it comes to people. <laughs> Paper's really easily, there's not a formula, we gotta be a part of a church family. And again, I'm not, the reason that I'm doing two things on this and talking about it at length is hopefully this can be a resource, but then we've gotta walk with each other through this. So we've gotta walk and talk about di divorce, we gotta talk about remarriage. What is remarriage? I told you last time, this is interesting. So. Today, 40% of marriages are remarriages. I learned that this week. I did not know that. So 60% of people who get married, it is each person's first marriage. 20% of marriages, it's one of their second marriage. And 20%, it's both of their second marriage. So why am I telling you that? Well, because one thing you have to realize is it's becoming more and more normal. Culturally, you're going to meet more and more people who are remarried, no matter where you land on it, right? And people, and most people don't think, you know who thinks about remarriage? Divorced people. I'll tell you, let me tell you who else, because you need to know this. If you're going to be part of church, you know, because you go, who cares about remarriage? It's like, well, let me tell you who cares about them. Divorced people, um, single women as they get older. Not that long ago, I had a single woman come up to me. Can I talk to you, Pastor Kyle? Yeah, what's up? Can we talk about remarriage? Because, I, because I'm getting older and I'm afraid that I'm going to meet somebody who's already married. And I don't know what I believe about that. So part of this, sometimes we listen to things, we go, this isn't for me. Well, you're a part of a church family, so it is for you. And this is for everybody. We want to walk through these things. So and here's questions people ask about remarriage, because I don't have, we're dealing a lot tonight in the gray, which is why the Bible gives us wisdom. And it takes the whole Bible to be the whole Christian, so I'm trying to bring all this together. So if people ask this question about remarriage. Let me just give you the questions people ask. Can I get remarried if I was the innocent person? Like, you know, my husband left me. Like, I'll tell you, interesting, I, I um, finished preaching the message last week. You know, I, it went longer than I thought. I walk out. I walk out that way like I always do. I get to the hallway. I turn the corner, and there's a woman, young lady, just absolutely crying. I mean, just bawling. 
And we talked, and I know who she is, and we talked for a little bit, and this is a woman who's divorced. And she was the innocent person in the divorce. She didn't want to get divorced. She didn't, she didn't sign up to get divorced. She wanted to work on it, even when he sinned against her. And now she's dealing with the realities of all of this. And the question is, can, can, can the innocent person get remarried? And let me just so you know, Christians and pastors disagree and debate, don't have to divide over these issues ultimately. But yes, I believe they can. The recommendation that I've heard from more seasoned pastors to me is it better be at least two years, more close to five years, just to allow healing and potentially the possibility in some cases of reconciliation. You know, I've got a friend whose parents got divorced, they were Jewish. They both came to Christ the next two or three years. They married each other again. They're on their second marriage to each other. It can happen. Um, here's another question people ask. Well, what if, I, what if it was my fault? But what if I came to Christ? What, I mean, God, doesn't God change people? I mean, don't you? What about David? I mean, David has a guy killed, and then, you know, and then Solomon comes out of that? So somehow God works things for good. I mean, what about me and my remarriage? People say, well, what, 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 maybe, I, what, maybe I came to Christ, okay, or no, maybe I, maybe I just was, had a dark season in my walk with Christ. Does this mean I can never, ever get remarried? And again, these are careful issues. Uh, I know a guy, again, I'm not trying to be able, just tell stories, but I know a guy who, he literally left his wife, she remarried, his heart was broken, he came to Christ, and in the last year or two, he's gotten remarried, he's got a beautiful family. And so I, I, what we say is we're taking it one case at a time. We're taking it one person at a time. We're walking together with people in this. We're giving a lot of grace. And, and there's another question that people ask, rightly so, about remarriage. And, and it's this. What if I am in an unbiblical remarriage? I, I got divorced. It was my fault. And then on the rebound, I married somebody that I know I shouldn't. And now I'm in my second or I'm in my third marriage. And, and I know it's an unbiblical marriage. What do I do? Or they maybe even ask this. They go, um, am I in a perpetual state of adultery? Is that what I'm in? Or do I need to get divorced again? Do I need to get divorced a second time? Do I need to, to get divorced out of my second marriage? And the answer is No. And I'll tell you two things. The way that the Bible talks about an unbiblical remarriage is it's an event that was sinful, but not a state that is sinful. And when Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, when he writes about all of this, and read that sometime, he's writing about, hey, you got all these different situations in the church, and here's what's going on, um, and, and some of you are single, and some of you are divorced, and some of you are remarried, and, and, and he basically says, when, I know I'm giving you a lot of information, stay in the state you are in when you get this information. And here's what we need to do, whether you're divorced, whether you're remarried, whether you're single, whether you're happily married, here's what you do in, in all of those cases is you say, Lord, I need the grace of God in my life in this area. And what the grace of God exists for is to meet the gap, the gap between the real and the ideal. And that's what you need to say, Lord, I need the grace of God in my second marriage and God will give it to you. I need the grace of God in my first marriage. I need the grace of God in my divorce. I need the grace of God because I'm divorced. I need, I need the grace of God in my singleness. And so, so that's the topic of remarriage, and then we have to get into a topic that's connected all of this, and this is why this conversation is long, okay? And, but we need to have this as a church family. We need to talk about marriage, and even before that, dating. So dating, marriage, well, we need to talk about um, divorce, we need to talk about remarriage, and then, and then a question and category connected to all this is leadership, which, which people ask something like this. 
Well, you know, if someone is divorced, or if I'm divorced, or if I'm remarried, or if I committed adultery, or, or, or if I've got something in my past, how does leadership work out for me? Like, am I allowed to be a community group leader, or can I serve in this church, or what, what, you know, what would the future look like? And those are real questions, and, and again, like everything else we're talking about tonight, uh, this is not something that can be answered simply or easily. What we do is we say, first of all, let's, we need a lot of time in any of those situations. Because what we want to see is, is, in every person's life, is there godly sorrow over what happened, or is there just worldly sorrow? Worldly sorrows, I'm sorry for the consequences, and I would really just like life to get back to normal as soon as possible. And, and the danger of that is too often people are restored to ministry and to leadership way too soon and way too high of leadership. But at the same time, we want to look at the pattern of a person's life across time to see, has there been repentance? Has there been restoration? Has there been reconciliation? Has there been growth? And let me just tell you this, because I know all the verses. I know Titus 1, I know 1 Timothy 3, I know 1 Peter 5, I know Acts 20. Those are the four main areas in the New Testament that talk about leadership. They all talk about the present, current, consistent character of the man or woman who is leading. So when you read one woman man, when you read not a drunkard, when you read hospitable, when you read self-control, when you read above reproach, look, there's a way that all of us could read some of those characteristics and go, I'm unqualified because at some point in my life, there was a pattern of my life of not having self-control. Or there was a pattern of my life of being not above reproach. Or there was a pattern of my life where I wasn't a one-woman man in college, or whatever it would be. And so at one level, when you read those, it should humble all of us. And so what we're saying is, look, there are, it's, it's multiple levels to talk about because it's, there's different levels and layers to leadership that we're talking about. But what we would say is that we're not putting a lid on any, uh, on any part of leadership and saying, you know, no, no one can ever reach this level of leadership because of something they did in their past. Because what we want to see is, okay, what does their current look like, life look like? Did this happen 15 years ago? Were they not a Christian? Has God done a great work in their life? Again, wise counsel, the word of God, taking one person, one situation at a time, taking sin very seriously, very seriously, but at the same time, believing in the grace of God and God's heart to restore. Paul was a former murderer who becomes an apostle after he comes to Christ. Peter denies Jesus Christ in his moment of need and within 40 days is restored to the highest office in the church. And you read verses like that and you go, sin's serious, but God has a heart to reconcile and restore. So let's close the door a little bit on that, that conversation. And we need to look at one more element of all of this, marriage, divorce, remarriage. What, what's, what's one more thing we have to talk about? And the answer is children. If you look at me at verse 15 of Malachi chapter two says this, did he not make them one? So that's God's work with a portion of the spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? What was God seeking and looking for? Godly offspring, not just children, but godly children. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For, for the rest of our time together, here's what we're gonna talk about, that God wants us to have a good life and legacy, not just a good time. Too many of us can't see past the next weekend, the next paycheck, the next vacation. 
And we only think instantaneously, we do not think generationally. And what God is doing here is he is having us think about the next generation. He's thinking about children. And let me just encourage particularly the young men. Too many young men, when they're looking for a girlfriend, they're saying, is she hot? And does she laugh at my jokes? And can we have a lot of good time together? It's like, there's got to be so much more to that. How about, is she a Christian? Would she be a great wife and mom? Because what you're looking for is you're not just looking for a girlfriend. You're looking for someone who will become a grandma one day. Who you could build a life and a legacy and a home with. And so what he's saying, if you look at verse 15, he uses that phrase, and this is where we're going to spend most of the rest of our time. He uses the phrase godly offspring, which is to just tell us this, the goal of parenting, and just receive this and sit under the weight of this, the goal of parenting is the conversion of your child. The goal of parenting is not what it is in Asian culture. In Asian culture, the goal of parenting is that your child would be successful. And we can see that when they make that their goal, Asian, Asian children are incredibly academically successful because that's the goal of parenting, self-admittedly. What is the goal for the average American parent? The goal of parenting for the average American parent is that my child would be happy. No matter what rebellious thing they're doing, no matter how much they're breaking God's heart, no matter how much they're going against the word of God, as long as they're happy, it's like that can't be the goal. The goal of parenting has to be the conversion of our children. And look, I know that we ultimately aren't in control of that, but guess what God uses? Throughout the Bible, the Bible says that God uses one thing primarily to bring about the conversion of children in the home, and it's moms and dads who fear the Lord together. Because when, you, when the posture of your heart is, I fear the Lord, and I want God is real, and I want God to move in my life and in my family, that changes and transforms the home. And there's one other thing I wanna to talk to you about too, and it's this, that we cannot think about marriage apart from children. Again, and all this stuff is like, you gotta step so carefully. Okay, I'm not saying, there are, there are people who struggle with infertility. We're not saying that everyone has to have a honeymoon baby. We're not saying that. What we are saying is that every marriage, biblically, I don't understand, I don't know how to understand the Bible outside of saying every marriage needs to be open to the possibility of children. It's one of the purposes of marriage. When I, when I meet with couples to do premarital counseling, I say, listen, I can't do your wedding if you're not open to having children. In the same way, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing your wedding if you guys didn't want to be sexu sexually active with each other, because that's the purpose of marriage. And if you didn't want to work towards being friends, because that's the purpose of marriage. And if you didn't want to be a model of Christ in the church, because that's the purpose of marriage. And so he says, we've got to think about this, because, in, and it's interesting that he goes, isn't this interesting? He talks about marriage, divorce, and children. There's a lady named Dr. Jane Anderson. She's not a Christian that I know of. She's done the most comprehensive study um, uh, on the connection between divorce and children. 30 years. Let me read you what she found about the effects of divorce on children. Her takeaway was this. Divorce has widespread effects on the family, especially on children. Here's, here's the non-negotiables happens every divorce. The child loses time with each parent. You cannot get around that. The child loses economic and emotional stability at some level. After that, it's, it's more suspect. Higher chance of losing their religious faith, tend to be less physically healthy, deal with mo more emotional issues long term. Here's what she says. The best scientific literature to date suggests that with the exception of parents faced with unresolved marital violence, children fare better when parents work at maintaining the marriage Consequently, society should make every effort to support healthy marriages and to discourage married couples from divorcing. But it takes long-term thinking 
It takes legacy thinking. It takes generational thinking. See, what we've done, and I want you to understand the culture we live in, God has always tied three things together. Marriage, sex, children, in that order. But think about this. They have been, like in no time in human history, we have, we have taken all those apart. So people have sex with no thought of marriage or children. That's the hookup, shack up, break up, cohabitate culture. That's, that's the, and at this level I'm not talking about, you know, the goodness or not goodness of birth control. That's, that's bringing birth control in, into it. And what you're seeing is you're, you're seeing more and more people get emotionally and sexually involved with multiple people, or maybe just one, with never the thought of marriage and never the thought of children. And we know this isn't good. It's interesting. Campus Crusade for Christ. Great college ministry. The most successful advertising campaign they ever did was of four different condoms. It was just four condoms on a big poster, and it said, too bad there's not one for your heart. And you start to ask people, hey, why is it that everybody's, most people's worst regrets in their life are sexual nature? It's because sex is powerful. It's meant to be in, in the boundaries of marriage. Then you have other people who do marriage and sex with no children. We call them dinks. Double income, no kids. And I want to tell you this, because again, I've been pastoring and leading long enough to know these things. The number one, and we have a lot of young couples in our church, the number one massive struggle that a couple has is when they try to have their first baby and they realize, wait a second, it was fun being double income, two people. Because you've been working on your job and you've been working on your job and we make X plus X and there's only two of us. But now we've got to figure out, are you going to work? Are you not going to work? Are you going to do daycare? Are we not? Who works? Who doesn't work? And the problem with most people is they not, they're not thinking about it way in advance. It's like, man, have that conversation as soon as you get married or before you get married. You have a whole generation there. Then you have a whole generation that does, this is interesting, this is new. You're, you're going to go, how is this possible? Children without sex or marriage. Wealthy, working women. Hannah Rosen writes about it in her book, The End of Men. She writes for The Atlantic. She basically says, big thing is now. It's like, okay, look, I make, you know, some woman says, I make a half a million dollars. I've got six months of maternity. I got a great daycare. I got a flexible job. I don't need a man. So I'm going to have children without even worrying about there's in vitro fertilization, there's surrogate mom. I mean, I mean there's adoption. So I can just kind of take these things and I don't, I don't even have to bring them together. Or then there's a lot of Christian marriages or marriages in general which is marriage and children with no sex. And people end up being sexless roommates raising kids. And you would not believe how many of those stories we hear. And so the, this is, we have to be the people, part of what we're doing on Sundays, we're doing a lot of things. We're looking at the scriptures. We are building a city in our minds. That's what we're doing. That's the image in my mind. We're building a city so we can understand things so that we have a lens and a worldview to see all of life. And so we have to raise the phrases, godly children, godly children. So that not just children, right? Having children is easy. Raising children to be godly and follow Christ, that's very difficult. This isn't a whole sermon on parenting. I need to grow in this myself. But, but, but there are a couple principles, you know, again, what we're, we're, and let me give you a lot of grace here. Let me say something very pastoral. I learned this from a guy who's got three kids that are all walking with the Lord. This guy's in his 70s. He said, Kyle... Whenever you talk on parenting, he said this, tell people, check the fruit, not the watering schedule. Here's what he, he, he says, basically what happens is he said, I always felt like I was doing a great job with my kids until I went to a parenting conference. 
And they tell me seven things I wasn't doing. I'm like, well, my kids love the Lord, and they love me, and they love Christ, and they love the church. They're repenting of their sin. They love each other. But I got my own, we got our own way of doing it. So, so find your own practice. You know, but are, is, are, is it bearing fruit? Here's, but here's a couple of things that are helpful. Think, how can you creatively and consistently get the word of God into your kids' lives? You know, I mean, here's a real practical as your kids get older. If you're gonna have godly children, you have to have a home that's got the word of God in it, right? So here's a real practical thing. Do your kids have an age-appropriate Bible? It's like you can get on Amazon right now and find one of those and order them. We, we just got, so I've got three kids. My son is six years old. He's just doing a great job learning to read. And, uh, and I just got him. I was like, I wonder if we'll love to read the Bible more. So I got him the Action Bible. It is a graphic novel, and every picture is so violent. It is just, it's every, it's every six-year-old's dream. And he's reading the Bible more than he's ever read the Bible. And it's like, and then my daughter, she loves crafts, and she loves art, and she loves, and so we got her doodling devotions. So she's got all the stuff, and then she can doodle, and she can draw pictures. And again, we're learning. We're, we're not where we need to be. But, but we've got to do this, and then there's three things that we have to communicate to our kids. And it's, the one is that holiness equals happiness. You know, we're, and, and I say all this and convict it myself. You know, it's just like we want to basically say, guys, the best life's the Christian life. I promise. Mom and dad love each other. We love Christ. We love the church. The, the environment in this home is we get to, not we have to. The, se- the second thing that you've got to communicate to your kids, however you want to communicate it. So the first is holiness equals happiness. Uh, the second is sin equals pain. So you're going to have to figure out discipline. And I know some of you go, we don't discipline Timmy. We know. <laughs> We're praying for you guys. This sermon's for you, okay? Um, but, um, but you're going to have to figure that out. It's like, well, what does it look like? You know, and it could be, well, you, you do different things. It's like, do we spank? And how do we do that? And then do we, is there, how do we do? Do we take something away? And do we reward? And, or, you know, how, how, but the whole principle is that, you listen, the rest of their life, people are just going to tell them, Everything they do is okay. I mean, that's the air that we breathe. And that people will lie and say, there will be no consequences for this. Everything's just a mistake or an accident or an indiscretion. And so we, we'll tell our kids, hey, the reason that we're doing this right now is we love you, but we want you, we want you to associate foolishness, rebellion, and sin with pain. And we want them to equal the foolishness and rebellion. We don't want to get crazy here, but we want that in your mind to be, you don't want, to, you don't want those in your life. And then the third thing you're going to have to communicate is that love equals discipline. That, that hey guys, the reason that I'm, we're doing all this, it's actually, and that's, that's very much the character of God. The character of God is God lo- disciplines the ones that he loves. There's training discipline. There's, you know, there's, there's uh, after they sin discipline, there's different disciplines. But what we see here is an emphasis on children and bringing, raising up godly children. Look, look what he says right afterwards. Look at verse 17. He gives this whole section on marriage and divorce and children and raising godly offspring, okay? And then he says this, you have wearied the Lord, which is a hilarious statement. It's like, look, God is infinite and inexhaustible and you've made him tired, okay? (laughs) You have exhausted the inexhaustible God with your words. And he goes, well, but, but you say, how have we wearied him? And this is what we have to go against as parents and as families. He says this, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? So what we have to understand is, we're going against, he's saying, Here, here's going to be what's going to hinder us. People are going to tell people that evil things are okay to do. Here's what we call this tolerance. 
We're just going to approve and affirm and celebrate all lifestyles, all ideologies, all beliefs, all perspectives, all sexual identities. And everybody's going to just tell you that it's okay. Everybody has a coexist bumper sticker and a, and, a, and a rainbow on the back of their camel, okay? That's what he's saying. And that's the environment that we're going to grow up in, and it's going to be very, very difficult. In fact, look, this is interesting. Look what happens in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, if you go right to the next one. He goes, Behold, I send my messenger, because everybody's been telling you that you're okay, and that everybody goes to heaven, and that everybody goes to a better place, and that all you don't need one way, that there's just spirituality, that faith is personal and, and private, never public. That's all about how you feel, not about facts. He, he's gonna say, he goes, so here's what I'm doing. I'm sending my messenger. That's John the Baptist. That's a prophecy of John the Baptist. I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way. And the rest of chapter three and the rest of chapter four are about generational faithfulness. And one of the questions I have for us, are, are we willing to plow and pave the way for the next generation. And what, what that means is the way that you, have you ever you know, driven by a neighborhood and there's trees everywhere and you can see the, you know, they're just starting to do construction then you come back a few days later or a couple weeks later and you're like, there's a massive road through this place now. You know, you see all these developments going up. It's like, wow, what, one of the first things that you have to do if you're even gonna get back there is somebody's gotta pave the way. Part of what we're trying to do as a church is the reason that we're doing expositional preaching, the reason that we walk through books of the Bible, the reason that we have a kid's ministry, the reason that we're doing all of these things, the reason that we try to be super clear about what we believe, the reason that we also try to always say this is what the world believes, is we're trying to prepare the next generation. I want, I want you to see the final word. I don't, I don't have time to go into the rest of chapter three. I want you to see what God says in verse six, though. This is the main statement about God that he wants you to remember for 400 years because he doesn't show up again until Matthew. Malachi 3 verse 6 says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Generations are going to come. Presidents and political candidates are going to come. Nations are going to come and go. And God says, I do not change. And then he goes, Therefore, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. In other words, he's like, If I were to change, I would have killed you. Because I've told you that I was going to be faithful even when you are not faithless, or even when you are faithless. And here's one of the most interesting things. God basically says, I'm not going to change. What's the application? You need to change. That's it. It's like, well, you know, we want to spend all our time getting God to change. Would God change his mind so I could do something I want to do? And God's like, look, my word's not changing. I'm not changing. You're the one that's going to have to change. This is what, what theologians call the, immu the immutability of God. God doesn't need to learn. God doesn't need to grow. God doesn't need to mature. God doesn't need to rethink anything. It's this high, exalted view of God as he goes into 400 years of silence. But I want us to spend our final moments together looking at the last verse of the Old Testament. And even if you're watching for some reason and you're a seeker, a skeptic, you're, you're asking questions, is the Bible true? I, I would just commend you and say, look at this last verse. And I think one of the reasons to believe the Bible is how clearly it speaks to the world, how clearly it speaks to experience, how clearly it speaks to what we're seeing. This was written down 2,500 years ago. And this is the final word in scripture. Look at this. And he, it's about a prophecy. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. We're back talking about dads. 
We're back talking about families. We're back talking about legacy, lineage, generational thinking. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the final and utter destruction. I wanna tell you a few things here. This is so interesting. God says at the very end, that, here's what this verse is saying. It's super clear. It doesn't even need me to really explain it. He's basically saying this. The world will be cursed. That's what destruction means. The world will be cursed and the world will head into destruction if fathers don't love their children and take care of them. And if in response to that, because the father has to initiate and be first, if children don't resp respond to that and turn their hearts toward their dad. I mean, I want us, I, I mean, this is one of those moments that I feel this every once in a while. It's like, I, I, I don't think I can fully explain to you how important this is. Like, here's what he's saying. He goes, all right, look, there's all these problems in the world, right? It's like, just name them, you know, whatever it is. It's like, you know, every nonprofit, it's been said, every nonprofit started because of the failure of dad. Think about that for a couple years. It's like, well, why, you know, really the failure of men. It's like, well, why do we need a pregnancy care center? And God bless pregnancy care centers. It's like the failure of men. The failure of every dad just to be there and say, that's it, we're not doing this, or we're going to get through this, or the failure of every boyfriend, or how it's like, why, does it, why are there homeless shelters? I'm not saying it's quite this easy, but at one level, it's the failure of dad. It's like, this is so amazing. It's like, God's like, listen, there's all these massive problems in the whole world, and I'm going to be quiet for about 400 years, but there's all these massive problems, and I want to tell you my answer, dad. Wow. It's like, that's the answer? And it's like, wow, man, right? You feel, feel that. It's like, that's the answer to all the problems? And it's like, you know, one of my great desires for Two Cities Church is that men would have a father's heart here. Say, you know, I, I love children. And just so you know, it's not, it's not easy to love children. <laughs> it's, I mean, I mean, I mean the... It really is not. Now, it's easy, it's easy at one level. Uh, I mean, I'm speaking technically here. I mean, it's easy at one level to love your kids. There's a deep biological bond. But in general, to love children is unique, particularly for men. And normally when you see men loving children, first their own children and other kids, that, that's the Holy Spirit working in their life. And what he's saying is that there's such a powerful idea of when a dad turns his heart toward his son, or toward his kid, not just his son, his children. And I want to give you some illustrations about this because I think it's so important. What does a dad do? We're, I mean, unfortunately, we're in a, such a confused culture, we don't even know what dad does anymore, right? And if you watch sitcoms, it's like, you know, there's certain shows that my wife and I will be watching with the kids, we're like, we got to turn this off because dad's an idiot again. <laughs> I mean, you know, and so is mom a lot of times, but dad's certainly an idiot, and, you know, and the, thank goodness the dog saves the day, you know? And it's like... You know, and so you got all these shows about this kind of stuff. So, so what does a dad do? Well, you know, a dad, the, the number one thing a dad does is encourage. And I'm actually speaking technically. This is what a dad does uniquely. And I'm not saying there's a whole other sermon for moms, and moms do these things to an extent too. But there's a, basically what a dad does is say, get out there. I'm behind you. And, and actually, you can a lot of times tell if somebody, particularly a man, did not have a strong dad, he's usually afraid of commitment. And he's usually afraid of taking risks. Because basically what a dad is, is a backstop. A dad basically says, look, if you fail at this business, I'm going to help you. It, you know, get out there. Make some money. Meet a girl. Go on. And then here's what a dad says. This is so powerful. A dad says this, I've been there. 
And I, I can remember the first time, I, you know, it hits different men at different times. But, you know, I can remember getting out of college and I was in this, you know, I was raising support, living off a very little bit amount of money, um, living in this little apartment that I, or this little, you know, I had a, one room out of this little house and I had this one little room of it. And I just remember, and then, you know, I had my bills and I went and got to the grocery store and then I got this bill and I got that bill. And, and I just thought, how did my dad pay for all these things? I've got my little room and I'm like struggling. And I'm like, dad pays for everything. And I'm like, dad figured out how to do it. I think I could probably figure out how to do it. And you don't understand that that happens at a very deep level in people's lives. Sometimes subconsciously, you don't even know it's happening. And people go, well, how are so many things generational? Because somebody goes, well, dad just did it, so I guess I'll just give up too. And this is why dads are storytellers. They are. They tell lots of stories. This is about how me and mom met. This is what it was like when you were young and I was trying to make money. This is what it was like when I came to Christ and what God did in my life. Most men, unfortunately, are known for their silence, not their storyteller. The second thing a dad is, and you know, I like alliteration, it might not be the best word, but an enforcer. It's like, you know, dad is the one who has to say no. You say it lovingly with your heart toward your children, but no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to be like that. And particularly young men, they need a masculinity in their life older than them, stronger than them to put them in their place in the best sense of the word. I mean, the literature of men in prison, it's like men in prison, first thing you know about them, they don't have a dad. It's like, go try to find a man in prison who had a good dad. It's like, it doesn't exist almost. And so this is, a, a dad is incredibly important. And, and our, our hearts here, and there's a whole other sermon sometime on moms, but, but our, our hearts here is to have our hearts tur- torn toward our, turned toward our children, which means our hearts cannot be turned toward. I'm like, I thought about this. I actually thought about this driving here. I thought, what, is, what are our hearts toward torn? Men, like what, are, what do we turn our hearts toward? It's like, well, mostly just selfishness, mostly just escaping. You know, I was talking to a guy the other day. He's like, you know, he's, he's a great guy, not in our church. And he's just complaining about his dad. He said, you know, my dad, he said, he loves his dad. He said, I love my dad. He said, but he's just a terrible grandfather. He said, my kids want to know him. He's just, it's like, you know, it's like as soon as he comes over, he's nice to the kids for three minutes. And then it's like, go get a drink and go sit on the porch and go hide somewhere. And keep the kids away from me. And he's like, I want my dad, I want my grandfather to be invested. I want his heart toward my kids. There's a great power if men will turn their hearts toward their children. And then in response, some of you need to hear this message. You need to hurt, turn your heart back toward your dad. And it, some of you, the, the dads, you need to call and you need to repent to your sons or daughters. But some of you, it's like, you look, you're, you actually had the greatest parents. You had the greatest parents and they were telling you and they turned their heart toward you because that's a whole other sermon is you can turn your heart toward your kids and they can go astray. You could do everything right in their kids. I, I was meeting with a couple. They said, well, you know, three, three of our kids, they're in ministry. They love the Lord. They're following the Lord. We got one son who's living an alternative lifestyle in Asheville. We have no idea why that is. We loved them. We prayed for them all. We, they were all in the same youth group. They were all in the same church. So this is not a condemning message to anyone. This is for all of us to realize that God the Father turned his heart toward us. Because you have to ask, where are you going to get the motivation where are you going to get the motivation to turn your heart toward your kids? Whether it's I'm going to get on the floor and play with them when I don't want to play with them. I'm going to have the conversations that I don't necessarily maybe want to have. 
I'm going to engage them when I'm tired. You have to realize, man, God the Father, from eternity past, he turned his heart toward us even when we were rebellious and we were running away. And he has always been a father because he's always had a son. He sends Jesus Christ into the world. And when you realize, genuinely at a deep level, when you realize how much God has loved you, that's what changes your heart. That really is. You're like, you know, some of you had terrible fathers, but guess what? God, here's what God says, I'm a father to the fatherless. And realize, man, God has loved me so much that all I want to do in response is I would like to be something of a mirror of that to my kids here on earth. It's a great honor. And what I want us to do is, I was, you can close your eyes, I just want us to respond. I think we need more time to respond to the word of God. I don't know where exactly God's calling you. For some of you, God is just calling you to say, it's time for you to work on yourself so you can move toward marriage. I'm particularly thinking of young men. I'm not saying every young man needs to get married. But there are a lot of young men who, they're, they're listening to this, maybe they're in the room, maybe they're listening online, and they just need to say, I, I need to stop thinking instantaneously, I need to start thinking generationally. I need, to, I need to pursue a woman, I need to start a family, I need to build a life, I need to raise the next generation. Lord, I pray again for the single women. I know there are, there are single women who are, who are very, very content where they are in their singleness. The vast majority of the single women I've spoken to over the last several years just wish there were more godly men that would pursue them. Lord, I pray for marriages. Lord, I pray for people right now. Some of you, you just say, I need to, maybe you just reach over and you grab your spouse's hand and you just, you just pray with each other. It's like, you know, work on your marriage. It's like, you know, neither of you are going anywhere. Just work on it. Some of us, we just need to pray for our children. Let's pray, you know, let's pray for our children. We've got 200 plus kids under fifth grade in this church. That they're gonna go to high school and they're gonna go to college and just pray for them. Whatever's in your heart right now for, you, for the next generation. They have access to so much with social media and the internet. Will we pray for this next generation? And then I want to just talk to, to the dads, you know, just dads, that you would lead your family. Just ask the Lord right now, what do you need to do to start thinking generationally in your family? Maybe it's you just start praying with your kids, praying with your family. Maybe it's a devotional life. Maybe it's a reconnecting the, your family to the church. Maybe it's getting yourself in a community group. Maybe it's getting around some other older men in a DNA group who you admire and want to learn from Lord. Lord, would you strengthen this church so that we have great marriages, not perfect marriages, but great marriages where we can talk about what Christ has done in our lives. Jesus, we know that you don't just forgive us, you change our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.